This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. A number of events throughout the book festival um, and it's been a, a very fruitful partnership in terms of, of discussions and we hope to continue that today. Um, although the lights have gone down, I am really very much hoping that you will all feel part of, of the, the discussion and there is um, a very fit young person at the back with a handheld microphone who will rush around and do wait for it till it comes to you because um, you might feel um, that you're heard but we are, we are in the middle of a traffic island here so it's really helpful to have, have you, um, your voice magnified by that but we are very much hoping that you'll feel part of that discussion. Now, the event, the, the book that started this, Janet Smith, the director of the children's bit of the programme, thinking about this, um, was this, well, like, this is a rather grubby proof of this book, actually, the real thing is very smart, um, <laughs> called Next, which is a collection of uh, short stories, which was edited by Keith Gray, um, who is the only man on our panel, actually. <laughs> um, Keith is one of the UK's most accomplished writers for... Uh, for young people, but particularly for the young adult um, market. He has got an unerring ear for how they think. He's not just a writer, he's also a tremendous champion of young writers, and he was not a writer, he was not a reader um, when he was young, and there's something about Keith that really turns children on to writing. So he does a fantastic job in terms of encouraging young readers to become confident readers and also young writers to become confident young writers. He really is a remarkable chap. So we're delighted to have Keith here. This is his second anthology. Uh, the first one that he edited was uh, called Losing It, which was about first sexual experiences, which he tells me has been widely banned, which was a good sign. <laughs> um, uh, but this is his second one, and he's, he attracted a fantastic lineup of, of uh, authors, people like Mallory Blackman and Jonathan Stroud and Julie Britannia and Keith himself, his uh, story, and he's, he will hear a little bit from his story a bit later. Kate Harrison, um, is she was a journalist and she was a broadcaster, and then... I'm very glad to hear she gave that all up to become a full-time writer, so she's written for adults, and this is your Soul Beaches, your first young adult novel, and it is quite remarkable. It did make me think, how did the marketing meeting go for that acquisition? You know, how did they actually pin that book down? Because publishers <coughs> love to say, this is this kind of book. Um, and I did. I had a go, but really, it's, it's a sort of techno-murder mystery thriller, um, but it is so well-written and it's so watertight. And I tend to, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a cynic about things, but I absolutely got into it. It's a real page turner. And um, she's got the second one there, so I shall certainly be getting my hands on that. Um, so welcome. This is your first visit to the end of the festival, so we're delighted yeah. to have you here. Fun so far. Yes. Dr. Iona Heath is in the middle here, and she is currently the president of the Royal College of General Practitioners. She was a GP, and she tells me you were in the same practice for your entire career, which I think says a great deal for you. <laughs> but she retired, which I find quite strange to think of looking at you, because you don't look like a retired person. You retired last year, and since then you've taken on the presidency of um, the... the uh, Royal College of General Practitioners. So we're delighted to have her here because Iona wrote a book called Matters of Life and Death in which she explored a number of passages about the subject we'll do, be discussing today. Um, one review said we need these reminders about compassion and wisdom. The book I would say, I, I have a friend who's a GP and she has a copy but she would not let me take it out of her house <laughs> because she thought it was such a brilliant, brilliant book. So although it was very much, I think, 
aiming at um, general practitioners and student general practitioners, um, it, it was a most interesting read for somebody who has no medical knowledge whatsoever. So welcome to you all. So I thought we'd start by asking you two, who are the authors of the books for YE readers, to read a little bit, put us in the mood, and then Iona, if you could explain a little bit more about the book that we're talking about, of yours that we're talking about today, which was called, I don't think I said, it's called Matters of Life and Death. So a well more, a well more come to you. Um, <laughs> I can't speak, so I'm going to shut up now. A warm welcome to you. Keith, would you like to kick off with... Uh, uh, yes. Reading? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, uh, so in next... It, eight different stories, eight different authors, um, all dealing uh, with the subject in uh, sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful ways, uh, hopefully always in, in sensitive and, and thoughtful ways for young people to read. Um, my story uh, closes the collection, it's called Burying Barker, and it deals with a couple of deaths, uh, but mainly with a, uh, about a dog called Barker. Um, and the piece I'm going to read uh, comes from the middle of, of the story, so I don't want to explain too much about it, but the characters involved are the dead dog, Barker. Um, his owner is a boy called Marcus. Marcus's best friend is the narrator of this, of, of this part of the story. He's called Geordie, so it's Geordie's voice you'll be hearing. And uh, Marcus's girlfriend, Liv, uh, Olivia, Liv, she'll turn up as well. Um, and Marcus and uh, Geordie, they're actually digging up Barker after he's died, been buried, and they're digging him up out of his back garden. It's this freezing cold Sunday night in February, and we're at the bottom of Marcus's long back garden, underneath the apple trees or pear trees or whatever they were, and we were digging up his dead dog, Barker. And the grounds rock hard. Marcus's dad had only buried Barker the day before, but it rained and frozen and rained and frozen, and I just couldn't believe how hard that ground was. I was sweating and swearing, and Marcus was all, shush, quiet, don't wake my mum and dad yet, they'll go mental. We only had this one spade between us and had to keep swapping over. But then Liv turned up with another one. I can't remember if Marcus had phoned her or she'd called him. She said, I've looked like a right weirdo walking the streets at night with a garden spade. Maybe people thought you were carrying it for protection, Marcus said, in case of rapists, yeah? If you're really doing what you said you were doing on the phone, then I doubt I should have brought it at all. She waited for us to answer. I just kept on digging. You're not really digging up poor Barker, are you? Again, she waited. Marcus made a kind of a um sound, and she turned on me. Oh, Jesus, Geordie, what the hell are you letting him do this time? Don't blame me, I said. I just kept digging. Why was I here? Why was I helping? Marcus was my best friend. What other reason did I need? Liv was disgusted, then curious, and then disgusted all over again. Marcus got her to hold the torch. I was sweating pretty hard despite how cold it was. Poor Liv was shivering pretty bad. But it didn't take us too long after that to dig down far enough to find Barker. He was wrapped in one of Marcus's mum's best bedsheets, which had caused a row, he said. It had been white, but was now caked in mud and dirt and crushed worms. And that dog weighed a tonne. I'd thought the digging was the tough part, but Barker was massive, and it took both me and Marcus together to drag him out of the ground. Liv kept saying how stupid and mad and wrong this was, but she didn't try to stop us. I reckon she was curious again. But I was beginning to wonder if I could actually do, with it, do this, if I could actually go through with Marcus's plan. The sheet was stiff with the cold and the dirt and we had to kind of peel it off. It got stuck to the fur in places and we had to rip it away. The worst part was that Barker still looked like Barker, but really, obviously, dead. We laid him down on the grass on his side. He didn't look like he was sleeping. He was too dead for that. 
His lips had drawn back from his teeth as though he was snarling, and I could see the tip of his tongue, which was black and scaly, uh, weirdly scaly looking. His eye was half open, but looked more like a marble, like it would make a tink-tink noise if you tapped it. Liv said, This is horrible, Marcus. It's what he would have wanted, Marcus said. You know that, do you? Liv asked. He told you, did he? He was my dog, yeah, so I know, yeah. He crouched down beside Barker and tickled his ear. He tried to close that half-staring eye, but it was stuck. Can I have the saw? He asked. I didn't bring it, Liv said. Marcus sighed. Come on, Liv. Look, honest, this is exactly what he would have wanted. It's what I'd want, yeah? Definitely. Liv folded her arms. Liv, please. My dad's is broken. We need yours. I'm cold, I said. I wasn't joking. It felt like my sweat was starting to freeze to me. And I'm in for a massive rollicking if my dad sees I've snuck out again. If we're doing it, then let's just do it quickly, okay? Liv was far from happy. She pulled the saw out of the plastic bag that she'd dropped beside the apple trees. I don't want it back. Not after this. It was a hacksaw with a bright blue handle. Looked new. This is the grossest, most disgusting. Marcus darted a quick look at his house. Shush. Come on, Liv. Quiet. Yeah. Are you going to do it here? She asked. Don't know where else to take him. What do you reckon, Geordie? It might be kind of loud, I said. Drag him as far back as possible. Behind the greenhouse, maybe? So Marcus took Barker's front legs while I grabbed hold of the back ones. Without the sheet wrapped around him, I was surprised his fur still felt soft. I could smell him now, too. It wasn't a strong smell, but kind of spicy, and you couldn't help catching a small whiff as we struggled with him. He smelled like bad pepperoni. We left a trail in the frosty grass as we dragged him, but couldn't be seen from, his, from Marcus's parents' windows once we got him behind the greenhouse. Okay, Marcus said. We should be okay here, yeah? Put him down gently. And that almost made me laugh. Gently, like forgetting totally what we were going to do next. He needs to be in five bits, Marcus said, as he crouched beside the dog with Liv's hacksaw in his hand. But then swore and pulled a face. Yeah, sorry, not really thought the next bit through properly. We stared down at the, d the dog in the moon-shadowed grass. Saw's not big enough, is it? It'll never get through him. He measured the saw against Barker's torso. Then his neck. Could get his head off, though, yeah? Liv turned away. Jesus. Five parts, right? I said. Why not just do his legs and leave the rest of him here? Be the easiest. I really didn't like the idea of holding Barker's head while Marcus soared away at the neck. Luckily, Marcus nodded. Yeah, yeah, okay, that'll work. Do his back ones first, okay? I took a breath. Tried not to think too much about what we were doing. Failed. So just held my breath as I grabbed hold of one of Barker's back legs. You don't have to watch, Marcus told Liv. Too right, I don't she said, with her back to us. But I noticed the way her shoulders flinched and hunched at the sound that the saw made. And that does make sense in the context of the whole story, I promise. It really does make sense. Amazingly, it does. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, slightly different in tone. And no dead dogs, I promise. It's about the only thing I can't write about. Animals, horrible things with animals, even if they are dead. Um, so, Soul Beach... Um, one of the the way that I defined it originally when we talked about it was Facebook for the dead, which kind of gives you a sense of it being um, very now and a bit strange. Um, and uh, it was partly inspired by those Facebook pages that you see when people have died suddenly and you still see absolutely everything about their identity, their day-to-day -day lives, especially if they were young, you know, agonising about test results or falling out and then making up with a best friend. And the strangeness of going from that um, really lively encounter and, and saying 
something every day to it just stopping and then people obviously leaving their tributes and I just found that incredibly moving and I had to ask what if what if there were a site somewhere where people were still carrying on that existence that they should have had so um, this then is Soul Beach and the stage that we're at when for the short extract I'm going to read is about Alice who's my heroine she's 16 she's alive but her elder sister has been murdered and nobody knows who's done it and so on the day of her sister's funeral she gets an email opens the email and it seems to come from her sister who's saying come and find me so this is the point where she's clicked on the link and is making her first exploration of this virtual world Soul Beach Meggie. I whisper her name, unable to believe it's really her. Nothing comes back. Perhaps I wasn't loud enough. I nudge closer to the mic on my laptop. Meggie. Flory. A murmur. Nothing more. She sounds different. Flatter. Less lively. Not at all like my sister. The possibility that she's a hoaxer, that this whole thing is a sick setup, pinballs round my head again. But I dismiss it. No one would go to this much trouble. It's too crazy. More crazy than communicating with the dead through a social networking site. Are you really there, Meggie? Of course I am. But I didn't think you were ever going to show up. That's more like her. Where are you, Meggie? <sighs> I hear a very Meggie-like sigh now. Oh, bloody hell, so they were right. They? The others. They said that maybe you wouldn't be able to see us at first. All I can see is an empty beach. So empty, it feels like the very end of the world. Weird, there are loads of us around this morning. The philosophers, they're having a picnic to your left. The emos, they're on the edge of the pier, wondering whether to jump and feeling extra pissed off that if they do, they'll float right back to the surface again, like suicidal life boys. <laughs> emos, picnics. So many questions form in my head. I start with the most important, where are you? I'm right beside you. I'm touching your right hand. I look down at my hand, gripping the mouse. I can't feel anything. Well, duh, you are on a website, aren't you? And she sounds so big sisterish that I smile. Where are you now, Maggie? I haven't moved. No, I mean, where are you? Where, where is this? Another huge sigh comes out of the speakers. On the screen, a massive wave breaks on the shore, and I think I catch a glimpse of a person in front of it. But then the shape melts away like sea spray. You were exactly like this when you were four. Why does the man in the moon never blink? How can cheese be yellow when milk is white? Why don't humans have wings? The truth is, Alice, I don't have a clue where this is. The philosophers debate it endlessly, but that's not my idea of a good night out. Might you be in heaven? I know it's madness, but I swear I feel her breath on my neck as she laughs. Maybe. It's certainly a version of paradise. We always joke about it being modelled on some icky honeymoon resort. Danny's been all over the Caribbean and reckons it's like that. But then Tritty, she's Indian, she says it's like Goa. Danny? Tritty? I hadn't imagined my sister having fun in the afterlife. All this time I've been so alone, and now I find out she's got herself a gang of mates again. Who are the philosophers? I rack my brains, like Marx and 
Einstein? Oh no, she scoffs. There's no one old here. It's our nickname for the really intense ones who refuse to talk to the rest of us because they haven't accepted they're even here yet. Suicides, we reckon. Suicides? Is everyone there dead? Well, yeah. It's then I realise I haven't asked her the most important question of all. The one that never leaves me, even in my nightmares. Meggie, who killed you? The screen freezes. The early morning mist reappears, the sound of the waves fades, and then the display turns a thousand shades of blood red, like a sunset after a massacre. You have breached the terms and conditions of soulbeach.org. This breach will be reviewed by our management team. Their decision will be emailed to you within seven days. Meggie, I whisper first and then scream, Meggie! But I'm back on my homepage. And when I try and click back to the site via that email, my browser simply tells me the URL you have entered does not exist. Please check your spelling or try again later. Are you okay in there, Alice? It's my mother. For a moment, I imagine telling her that I'm not okay, not at all, and why. The thought makes me laugh in a hysterical sort of way. Fine, Mum, but fine. But I'm not fine. I've lost my sister all over again. I don't know if I can bear it this time around. There we go. <laughs> Amy, would you like to talk a bit about your book? <coughs> um, well, it was interesting. You said that it was um, aimed at doctors, and it was aimed at doctors when I wrote it. But interestingly, it was translated into Italian. That's a very long story for a general uh, public. Right. And uh, I had this uh, amazing moment when I was... Uh, for one week, number 15 in the Italian non-fiction bestseller wow. list. Um, so I've been to literary festivals in Italy, but nobody knows about my book here. Well, almost nobody who's not a doctor. Um, and I wrote it because no one is an expert on death. Uh, and doctors uh, know they've seen a lot of people die, um, and they've cared for people who are dying, but they know no more about death itself um, than anybody else and they have no expertise um, in dealing with death's challenges in dealing with trying to come to terms with what it is to be human um, what it is to love and to lose love and what it is to try and find meaning in the random things that happen and having sort of tried to deal with these things as I looked after people who were dying, uh, I, I found it an enormous help uh, to take bits of literature um, and to, there are little bits of literature that, that begin to help you make sense of it and literature <coughs> is much more helpful even for doctors um, in these areas and so I think that's probably the overlap. Yeah. Um. So would you say that it's important, you know, as a GP in the, and also as a mum and, uh, you know, within the family circle, would you say it's important for this sort of literature to be available? I mean, it's quite, this is quite new, it's quite cutting edge. It wasn't there certainly when I, well, it was a very long time ago, but it wasn't there when I was a teenager. No, it certainly um, wasn't there when I was a teenager. No. Um, uh, I think so. I think anything that invites people to think about these issues um, 
because one of the things that I think very strongly is that people um, people are very afraid of dying people. It's interesting that in these first stories, and maybe it'll be differently, that most of the people in these two books die suddenly. The young people die suddenly. And of course, young people don't always die suddenly. They, they die of illnesses as well. Um, and how difficult that is and how difficult it is for people to talk about it. And just an example of the literature, there's a, um, there's a little bit, and I think it's from Ingmar Bergman's biography, um, and it's about how difficult it is when no one is prepared to talk about the thing that occupies 90% of, of everybody in the room's brain, which is that somebody's dying, but you can't somehow, people find it impossible to talk about that, and therefore, what can you talk about, because that's the big issue. So it's, it's this thing of being able to think and being able to talk and being able to keep communicating even to the very end of this difficult process in which nobody is an expert and anybody who's done it despite some of the hopes in the stories um, gets to come back and share their wisdom yeah. as far as we <laughs> understand it. <laughs> Keith, you had um, put together the Losing It anthology which it did extremely well. You had also written a, a multiple award nominated and winning book called The Ostrich Boys which was very much on this subject as well so why did you choose this topic for this anthology or was this something you're um, uh, no I chose and it was it was it was during the writing of um, of Ostrich of, of my most recent novel was Ostrich Boys um, which which is about four best friends one of who has died and how the other three come to terms with death and the things they find out about their, their best friend after death. And, and there's just this scene in, the, in a so-called haunted house. And the three friends are arguing about, um, they're in a haunted house, so is it, is it haunted? Is their best friend going to come back as a ghost? What happens to them? They're arguing about uh, life after death. And it was while I was writing that scene, I thought, oh, there's an idea. I could write a whole book based in the afterlife. Uh, not knowing that somebody had already pinched the idea from me. Um, but I kind of realised that actually um, I'd write a, a, a whole book from one point of view, from my point of view, on one point of view. And so after doing the, the Losing It anthology, and what was interesting about the Losing It anthology was getting writers to write stories that I, I, I was unable to write because I didn't think like them and I wasn't that kind of writer. And so I thought, well, this idea of life after death that none of us know what, if it exists or what happens at even, doc, you know, having a doctor, uh, say, a professor say, <laughs> say we've got no idea what is really happening at that point. I thought, well, it'd be really interesting to, to get a few writers on board to do short stories and so that they would be able to write stories that I'd never be able to write. Um, and a few of the names I chose, I, I, I know a couple of the... Uh, Sally uh, Nichols, who is, who's involved, I'd met her before and I knew she was a Quaker. Uh, and so her point of view would be completely different to mine because I'm not a Quaker. And Frank Cottrell Boyce is involved, he's, he's a Catholic, and I knew that would be completely different again to because I'm not a Catholic. And, and so that was the idea behind it, was to get people to do things I couldn't. Mm. And so that for young people who read the anthology, they'd get different points of view. Um, and whether the, the idea, some, a couple of the stories are really very fantastical stories, uh, whereas, uh, like mine, a couple of the stories are a bit more down to earth. Um, 
but I think that's what makes the anthology work. It's 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 all these different ideas. It's all these different points of view, and so that it, even if one story doesn't match with how you feel or how you think, then maybe the next one will, or or that one that you didn't it may make you think in a different direction. Or uh, it's not a proselytizing book. I, I said that earlier. I'm, I'm not trying to change anybody's opinion of of what they do or don't believe. It's not that kind of book at all. It's it, it it's. Uh, it just felt like an interesting idea that hasn't been explored to this extent before in in fiction for young adults, mm -hmm. you know. Interestingly, when in the 80s, I think I was doing book selling, and then there was quite a lot of teenage novels then, Cynthia Voigt explored it, and there was quite a lot of slow lingering dying then. Those books are long out of print, but there certainly there was then a gap when not very much of that happened. Kate, you, that was your first young adult book, would you have thought that you might be sitting on a panel talking about this subject? I mean, was the the life after death bit a plot device or was it something you were genuinely interested in exploring for the readership? I am interested. I think, I'm, I think the fact that I've chosen my narrator as a living teenager rather than one of the people who exists on the beach and is in this amazing, pleasurable place, but a place they can never escape from. Um, shows that I'm probably more pre preoccupied by what happened to the people left behind. Uh -huh. um, because I think what you were saying about the preparation, and I think a lot of that comes from um, when I was 18, I decided not to go to university, I, I decided to become a journalist because that's what I really wanted to do. And I got a, an apprenticeship, very old-fashioned thing they call an indenture, where you kind of sign it all and you're, you're kind of, you know, you, you do what your boss tells you for two years and you come out of it a fully-fledged journalist. And my boss was a real hard-nosed person. He wasn't the nicest. And I was the only girl in this news agency. We worked over a fish and chip shop in Reading called Mr Cod. I used to come home every day smelling of fish and chips. Um, but I was very glad to get home because while I was there, it was really miserable. And one of the things they used to do... Um, they don't do it so much now, but th this is like a while ago, um, was I would listen to the radio in the morning and if, if I heard a story of a tragic death, I would know that I was going to be sent by my boss to go and knock on the doors of the poor people uh, who were left behind. And one of the reasons was because I was quite short and really young looking, they knew that I wouldn't get punched. Whereas most of the people that I worked with were, were tall and quite, you know, hard-looking people and the chances were they would. And what really surprised me, I hated doing it and I got out of that job as soon as I could, but what surprised me was how much people did want to talk. They wanted to um, discuss it with somebody who was outside the family, I think, as well, because of that intensity and that might be a doctor, but, but it might also be a complete stranger. And I think that, that, that the reason that came back to me you know, 20 odd years later was because um, I saw on these Facebook pages all the tributes, so that again was people fulfilling <coughs> that um, need still to talk to the person who wasn't there anymore but feel as though they were, but also to um, get it out there in public and I saw that the photographs that um, were chosen to go in the newspaper articles were more often than not taken from Facebook, so you almost had this idea that, you know, what you're getting wasn't the sanitised family version of the person that had been left behind, but it was if it was a teenager, it would be a picture of them as they'd chosen to present themselves to the world. Um, so there were all sorts of themes in there that I found really interesting. The, the question of how we make our identity and how we how that then lives on beyond us, because our whole lives are now lived online. So therefore, why wouldn't our whole death be lived online? But also that sense of 
how people want to talk, the fact that people want to talk about the, the people that they've lost. And I, I found a way in that um, of marrying the two together, not in the intention of, of sitting here, but it's been fascinating to hear other people's points of view, and it, it well, really it is. It was interesting. So, very so we, yeah. we, we did a, a schools event this morning, so uh, shiploads of kids brought in sort of thing uh, to the schools event this morning. And we were signing afterwards, and, and, and young young girls were coming up to you and telling you their experiences mm. weren't they of, of, of friends that they'd known but they, they still exist on so they you know they wanted to talk to Kate about their experiences um, that, that Soul Beach has made them think about that kind of thing it was really interesting and, and really nice to listen to these teenagers sort of opening up a little it's bit it's lovely talk, you feel really privileged you, you know, yeah so really privileged um, is it possible to just raise the lights a bit because that's a bit less murky anybody any questions you'd like to ask any of our three speakers there's somebody with a microphone at the back don't be shy. <laughs> yes, there's one here. <clears throat> what about um, Facebook and actually discovering a death on Facebook? Because that unfortunately happened to us very recently. But it was it was really it wasn't good, but it was because it, it was like it happened in the morning and we saw it coming through in the afternoon and by the evening everyone knew. So do you think that's something, I mean, that must happen in teen, I mean, as an adult, we could deal with it, and then we all got together, and, and we went through the processes that adults go through, but we're adults, and he was yeah. an adult as well, so for teenagers, that's a kind of, and I, I don't know, that would be something to look at, maybe, or how do you think they would cope with that? And that must happen. Um, I'm sure it does, yeah. yeah. I mean, I suppose... In a way, to me, it thinks that unless you're in the close family, you are go whenever you find out that somebody of your age... I mean, I was talking to these girls this morning. It, it's happened to many of us. I remember a, a morning when, when a girl that I knew in my class at school didn't show up, and she had had an accident on her bike, and she died. And, you know, there is something... That, you know, the first encounter you have with the death of somebody, particularly of your own age, if you're young, you know, I still remember that that moment really clearly all this all this time later so I guess that Facebook is is doing that and it's going to be shocking but they would that moment of finding out would be shocking anyway that the whole the thing that's more shocking and the thing that I've thought about a lot with the the book and I'm sure we all have thought about in the news is the whole is what happens after that is the fact that a lot of people then troll on the site you know the cases of people doing that and it you know that is the psychology that I find impossible. I can completely understand why you're still talking. It's the same motivation that means people keep messages on their mobiles or they keep ringing a mobile to hear that person's voice and those little fragments. And in a way, there's something fantastic about um, online and social networking is that you can remember that person, as I was saying, as they want to be remembered. But that flip side of online bullying, which I, I look at a bit in the book because it's such a major part of, of all our lives, but especially if you're a teenager and you're discovering your identity. And then that whole business of, of trolling and, and wanting to get a reaction is so far outside the experience that I think that's another thing that, you know, um, we've, we're in the very early days of looking at that. It might Terrifying. be interesting since that I guess I first learned about people had died when I was younger because it, my parents had read it in a newspaper or maybe a teacher at school told me about it, whereas I guess, so it was, it was filtered down to me from a, a parent that discovered it because I didn't read the paper as a kid, you know, so they'd read it in an obituary and they'd, 
they then put it in their, their words and pass it on to me. I guess nowadays on Facebook, kids are finding out themselves without the filter perhaps of of an adult cushioning the blow or, you know, I'm not quite sure how to phrase it. Well, I think it, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think people used to agonise about how to tell children bad news and now it's taken completely out of their hands and it, it's not just Facebook, of course, it's Twitter as well and, mm. and, uh, uh, and de Twitter can get things out unbelievably quickly, can't it? So, and there's no chance to, to filter or, or, or prepare um, young people to, to cope with these things, so so I think it it need it requires us to to think about our reaction to that situation and, and, and kind of move the filter yeah. beyond the news, as it were, about how you then help young people to, to talk. Which about is what you were talking about. How fi you know for me, a chip on my shoulder about fiction. Just uh, fiction builds empathy. You know, it, it's, it, when you read a book, you have to step into the page. You have to become the character. And, to, to get something out of that fiction, you know, it's not it's not a it's not a passive experience reading a book. You know, it's this little slice of virtual reality that you climb inside and, and you become the character. And so, reading um, a piece of fiction about somebody who's died is is a is a preparation perhaps for your real life. You're gonna you're gonna be learning those feelings as a as a young person. And I'm, uh, we saw it losing it has been banned from a few schools here and there and there's talk of banning next because it doesn't toe the party line that that school made and I find that really upsetting because of you know word if it's, it's it's the empathy that a, a book can build that a young person can be experiencing you know second hand the outside world before they have to experience it first hand perhaps um, so I find that kind of thing really disappointing because that's why we write books you know that's what fiction does it's all about uh, that empathetic link you have with your reader, um, is, you know, it's... Mm. It's a question down here. Just, just, Hi there. Uh, just following on from what you're saying, you know, it would be really interesting and fascinating to find, you know, is there any way that you can get feedback about how the impact of, you know, your, your, your short story, the collection of short stories, other than just kids maybe emailing you because they're moved, but, you know, there isn't a a way in which some sort of mechanism whereby you could see the effect of No, unfortunately not. Um which is why we do book festivals, I guess, to try and meet the readers in that so way. That's you what know, I'm it's, to get yeah. Really is, is there a, have you had much feedback so far? Well, it's us? it's brand new out next. It only came out next month. Ostrich Boys, which uh, Ostrich Boys deals with suicide, um, and I have had a few letters from people who uh, who have said that. It, it, it's something they've thought about, and perhaps because of reading Ostrich Boys, they've it, it's changed their mind about what they want to do, which is which is fantastic. Do you know what I mean? In in that sense, um, but not with not with Next. Although it, it, it's it's strange. I'm saying Ostrich Boys has perhaps stopped people from attempting suicide. So the message of that book works, so and maybe that's why people are scared of the losing it anthology. They think kids will suddenly run out. And, um, <laughs> yeah. Want to spread the goodwill. But I think one of the thing, wonderful things about books is the fact that you don't control it, and it just gets out there and it reverberates in its own way, and 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 can come back years later and bite you, as it were. But you know, I think the uncontrollability of it and the and the unknowability of what's happening to it is one of the mm, great mysteries, great great things as yes. well. Mm. Yes. Um, can I just ask, Iona, you were saying there is no 
particular training for GPs and young doctors in dealing with you know, possibly the, the you know, an oncoming death or, know, or dealing all, with death. There's all sorts of stuff. You know, there's there's being taught how to break bad news. Um, you know, lots of role play. Being all the stuff about looking after sim. Uh, you know treating pain and making people comfortable so there's a whole expertise there and that doctors have a considerable expertise there but they do not have any special expertise in how to find love and meaning in the face of a finite life because that's a, that's something that we all have to do as individual human beings and there's no what would the training be I mean if you see what I mean um, and I think that that's what I was trying to touch on. That, that, so one of the things I say in the book is that when a doctor looks after somebody who is dying, both people are engaged in one of the most difficult things that they will ever do. So, because the, the doctor's in the unknown as well in that area. And the temptation is to spend all your time fiddling around with the, with the drug chart and doubling the morphine and in order not to share the anguish of, of, of the, both the people left behind and the, and the dying person about facing up to that full stop. But that in itself, I mean, I can imagine that, you know, there is just for self-protection. I mean, I found, you know, I really enjoyed reading Next, but reading short stories, one, I, I read it kind of quite hungrily but it's exhausting entering into those different um, worlds and different points of view. Even more so if you're um, a physician and you are or a GP with a long-term relationship with a patient, to have to kind of be at their side, there's, there's a reason for keeping that self-protect. You know, you can't over-empathise no, no. because that so, would be so draining. I can't imagine what that would be like. But, it, but actually in many ways fighting to defend yourself right. is more draining okay. than actually yeah. you know being there right you know trying to be present trying to be in the moment is actually less draining than constantly worrying about you're going you're going to do you're right. going too close you're doing something wrong you're it, it, it it's better to not think about that and right. just try and be there that's i don't know how you teach that either but <laughs> No. <laughs> People have to find it out for themselves. There's a question down at the front. Um, I can't believe I'm sticking up for the GPs here. Um, <laughs> I currently work for a GP out of hours. Um, I'm not a GP. Um, but when you were talking about people being afraid of dying people. We deal with death every weekend and we have one phone and when it rings we generally know that it's something fairly unpleasant. Um, and we generally have to send a GP out to PLE or patient or, or where my worst fear is when I hear the words, I think my brother was dead or my mother or father or sister or whatever. I think for those GPs who go out there who haven't had contact with that, for all of us, and I would say we have quite a big team of us there, in order to survive that there tends to be sometimes a desensitisation to it. And it's just, you have to be, for us it's a, a procedure, it's a, you know, you have to date the birth, you have to 
go start going through all that process, the practicalities of death. For those doctors to go out there, and for some, sometimes it is, it's really emotional, but for those doctors to go out there and then be part of you know, that short time, and they maybe haven't cared for them all through that process, I think it's really, really difficult. And I, I don't think that's something that a GP or anyone can learn. No, I don't think it's anything, no. anything that you can learn. It's much easier if you do know, and I think it's a very sad that continuity of care has kind of gone out of the window, out of ours. Um, but just one little anecdote. Um, there's a, just before I retired, a patient in our practice, a woman in her late 80s, completely demented, not my, even my patient. But I go around to see her for some completely other reason. She remembers me, and she remembers my name out of all the murk because I was the one who was called when her husband collapsed and died 20 years earlier, and she remembers that. So it's very powerful, and you do get this sort of... Um, um, what's the word? You know, in those so a lot of camaraderie and some disrespectful comments sometimes, but it's different when you're actually there, and you can do both, actually. You can be sounding off back at base, but still do your job properly. How do you feel about death at home? People die. It's the, it's the best place. <laughs> <laughs> There's a question behind it. Mm. Mm. Um, what made you want to um, write Ostrich Boys and what made you want to write about someone committing suicide? Um, it was a subject that I, th that I big-headedly thought I knew a little bit about in some ways. I'd read a couple of books that aimed at young people that dealt with suicide and I didn't think they did it right. Uh, when I was 18 I attempted suicide. And so I thought I had a little bit of a, um, a little bit of extra experience. The book's not about me. I'm not any of the characters in the book at all, um, and it's a completely different experience to what I had. But I, the couple of books that I'd read, I, I was a little bit upset about um, that were aimed at young people for suicide. It, it was almost like um, somebody had attempted suicide because they felt bad. They didn't succeed, and uh, and then they realised they wanted to live again because their family loved them so much and it was almost like, well, I've, I've been bullied or I feel the world doesn't like me and now my family's gathering around me. So actually, attempting suicide was a good thing to do because it's shaken the world up, do you know what I mean? And, that, and there was, I read two or three and I couldn't believe that that was kind of the underlying message of these books, whether the author had intended, them or, intended it or not, that was the underlying message. And so with Ostrich Boys, Ross, the cat, he's dead on page one, he's dead. You know, um, absolutely. And I wanted to show the mess left behind. That if you do succeed, the, the, that is what is going to happen to the people, you, you know, that left behind. In that sense, so, so that was the the, the the plan with us. It, it was a very difficult book to write, a def, very difficult book to get the way I wanted it. Um, but but that was the plan. I kind of it just felt like a subject I could bring something to uh, that was that was maybe a little bit more truthful than what was out there at the moment. But I had to cheat, you know, there's, you, it's, I've spoiled the book now, you know, it's the twist at the end, you're not meant to know he's, he's committed to, it's the twist at the end of the book. And so the plan, there's lots of jokes at the run-up, there's, there's quite a few rude jokes, you know, at the run-up to the twist, and the idea was, to, was to, to get young people reading it, thinking it was an adventure story, um, because the, the three friends that are still left, they steal their dead best friend's ashes, 
uh, and run off with it. They kind of kidnap their dead best friend. And so it was meant to be a sort of a, a, a non-PC adventure story, if you see what I mean, that young people go, oh, this is quite, my parents won't like me reading this, this is quite adventurous, quite fun. And then actually hit them at the end with, well, this is why it happened. This is what the, the feelings have been leading up towards. So I kind of cheat a bit by not admitting until the end that's what the book's about. Uh, but luckily, it's, 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 it seems to have worked, you know, it seems to have worked with the readers. Um, so have you read it? Great. You read yeah, Australia. Australia. What did you Best book ever. Wow, am I glad you came tonight. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. That was really good. That was really good. Very good. Thank you. Question over here. Um, I was oh just uh, wondering about the fact that it is a rich source of, um, of material for stories, the idea of what happens after. Um, and the, the, I didn't know until you told me that there'd been a kind of drop-off in those sort of books being written and now they're coming back again. And I just wondered if you feel, as writers, that religion has kind of got the jump on, on fiction. Into, I mean, I, in my, in, for me, there isn't, there isn't a, I, I think religion is a kind of fiction. But I know not everybody believes that, so I'm just wondering how you feel your stories sit alongside some of the older stories that people believe about what happens next, and if there's a new kind of belief system, or if there's any of that that's come up when you've been discussing your stories with young people. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess for me, um, I, the same as all of us, I have no expertise. I, I don't know what happens next. Um, I, but I totally what I understand and what I'm tapping into I suppose when I'm writing is what I think is in common with loads of religions the, the kind of desire to A, do the right thing but also um, to have a second chance if you've got it wrong you know there's that awful kind of sense and um, I think this is one of the things that I find very difficult with religion is, is the sense that you could do all the, all the things right but if you pick the wrong if you tick the wrong box you know, perhaps you're going to be put in, and we were talking this morning about um, one of the stories in, in Next about the theory that if you don't wear the veil, it came from the idea that one girl said, if you don't wear the veil, you know, all, the, all of her friends and family and people in her class who didn't, and the teachers who didn't wear the veil, were going to hell. Whatever happened, that was, that was a, a yes or no. And, and so I guess what interests me about um, religion, but also then my own take on the afterlife, is that question of. Um, you know, do you get a second chance, and what what could you do to redeem yourself? Is because I think most stories are about a form of redemption, whether it's set now or whether it's set um, in the afterlife. That sense that we we start off flawed and we can hopefully amend or, or or find some way to put it right, and ultimately that's you know the ultimate judgment day. If we do believe in an afterlife, it must kind of there must be something there that is going to say you did this right, you were a good person, you weren't a good person. Um, what could you do to make that better? And, and so, with the Soul Beach stuff, it's very much for me. It was the question that if you've got, if something went wrong for you in life, you know, how would you? And you were you were in this eternity that is paradise on one level because it's beautiful and you have everything that you could possibly want. In this case, as teenagers, you've got a beach bar, you've got an endless beach, you look fantastic. Everybody um, also looks fantastic. But there, there is no depth to it. It just goes on forever and ever. And when we think about the afterlife, we think about meaning and what you were saying. We think about what our lives meant. And, and in my experience of, of you know, being quite a new writer for young people, what's brilliant about writing, especially for that age group, is that they're willing to engage with all that stuff 
in a way where often adults are kind of so locked in the now that they won't necessarily want to think about those big things. So I'm presenting something which could could potentially be right, probably isn't. Um, but I love having that discussion with people and I love the fact that writing about those things allows you to have that discussion. This, 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 this young adult has been trying to All get All right, in. sorry, I'm missed you. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, would you ever write a book about someone who had a horrible life, he was a gambler, he was a drunkard, a drug addict, and then he got a terminal disease, and over the book he redeems himself? Do you, would you ever write a book like that? I might steal the idea from you. Yeah, that's, 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 that's not too bad. Um, well, I, I think, as Kate was saying, a lot of books are about that kind of redemption in a way. Maybe not quite as as, as heavy uh, as that, but a, a lot of a lot of stories are looking at how you know that 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 arc of we start off pretty flawed and we're desperate to be better, or we're desperate to make ourselves desperate to make ourselves better in the sense that we're we're coming to terms with the death of a loved one. Well, how do we come to terms with that death? You know, start flawed. So it's not quite gambling drug addict, but there's that that flawed aspect to it. Um, I, I, I do quite. We're talking about death, and, it, and it, it's a quite, it's a quite an intense conversation. Um, there are. I'd, I'd hate you to think that Kate and, I, and my book are really miserable tracts or whatever. <laughs> there are some gags in there as well, uh, as well, and some light moments. Hopefully, some uh, some thoughtful and sensitive moments, as I said before. Um, but for me, the story all, is all about getting a character and and seeing where they go, you know, seeing how they develop. And now, if there are, if they're struggling in life in whatever way, shape, or form, you know, well, look, how are they maybe going to redeem themselves? Or, or, I mean, it might be interesting to actually take a somebody that's struggling in life for for whatever reason, if it's their own fault, and actually watch that that downward spiral. You know, that's maybe, but that's maybe even darker, isn't it? That's maybe even. But one of the things I put in my book, which is the opposite of what you said, is a quotation from Samuel Beckett, who is the great comfort for people who are going nowhere. Because he says somewhere, it's in Malone Dies, where almost everything is. And it's about um, uh, to know that there, there is no second chance, there is no starting over, <coughs> and it's a good thing there isn't. Uh, and it's a relief that, it, that there isn't. And, and so that, that's kind of... He's wonderfully sort of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're going to write this novel? Reese Keith, do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So that's quite Russian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. Um, I know there was some research done by an evangelical church who decided that they wanted to prove people did live afterlife. And they did lots of research with people in re, uh, resuscitation rooms, people dying and being, you know, being brought back on the table, operating table. And they were very pleased to discover that lots of these stories had people seeing a blue light at the end and you know, seeing relatives that had that never died. But then they also discovered um, murderers, rapists, and various horrible characters also had the same experience, <laughs> which they then got very worried about because people were packing in the church left, right, and centre because they said, "Doesn't matter. I can just do what I want in this life." You know. Well, it's in, going back to the the other point about religion getting the jump and that. I suppose you know, 
it, it is for, for many many people you know it's it's the um, it is the comfort of perhaps something there is something after and so, you know it, it's maybe it's maybe quite tough being an atheist and thinking that is a, a dead end maybe you know oh what I've got now is this is the only face I've got do you know what I mean and this is the only way I'm going to be um, so uh, I think that um, that the idea that re religion getting the jump on these stories and if there's a, there's a new way to look at the afterlife that's a really interesting point that I've not thought of before I've not thought about that um, and, it, and that's something I'd quite be quite interested to explore sort of a a drug addled hardened gambler who uh, who's thinking about yeah so um I, it's 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 a tough one because because the trouble is as, as I say next is causing problems and I'm sure there's there's one or two eyebrows raised about Soul Beach and we don't want to tread on people's toes in in that sense but I think it's fair to give young people uh, different ideas and different thoughts and they can decide for themselves if that makes sense. So. It's also been really interesting for me who ha I, I don't have any religion. Um, but I have looked after intensely religiously committed people dying, and it's no easier for them than anybody else. Mm. Uh, uh, the the fear, the the, the anxiety, the, everything about it. That it's very interesting. I somehow thought if you thought you were going to heaven and paradise and stuff, it would be easier. Doesn't seem to. In my experience, it doesn't seem to be. It's it's because it's losing here. It's not about where you're going. It's about losing here. That's, that's what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. Time, one more. Yes. Yeah, just hang on a minute, hang on. <laughs> I was just thinking when you, were, when you were speaking there, it suddenly occurred to me about the whole J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter thing, because I don't know if you've obviously read Harry Potter, and you know, that explores death and the whole experience of death is very, you know, it's very much a part of the, of the story. I just wondered if, what your comments Well, were. after the Losing Anthology, which is about first sexual experiences, and then the next anthology, which is all about uh, um, death of the afterlife, it sort of somebody, and I wish I could remember who said it, but somebody said that all stories are about sex and death. Mm -hmm. That whatever, you know, it could be. It doesn't have to be actually a physical death, but all stories, in some shape or form, are about sex or death. And um, and it is such fertile ground for writers because we don't know what's going to happen next. So it's almost like a fantasy land, isn't it? Sort of the the afterlife. It's you can write anything about it, and nobody can say, "Well, that's that's not realistic. That's that's wrong." Or that's in, in that way. If you want a fancy type story, um, and so that's what's fascinating about it as a writer. You you know, it's a free-for-all, which is great because a couple of the writers in Next have really, oh yeah, they have gone out there somewhere, <laughs> haven't they? Um, which is really, well, and sort of social networking afterlife as well. Sort of. But it's also about, although it is about the fantasy, there's also, there's a piece in, in your story that really struck me, and I guess it's what we're all saying, it's also about how we live our lives now. So as soon as you start thinking about, reflecting about death and it all coming to an end, there's that thing of thinking, have I, have I done it right? And in yours, there's that sense that the only thing, the only certainty is that the way that we live on is is through people who are still alive, through the memories that they've got of us, mm -hmm. and that's in a sense the only thing we've got control over. And so, whatever you're writing, it, it does for me, it does bring up thing, questions about 
not the afterlife brings up the questions about where we are now and how we choose to make uh, the best of what we've got and and the people that we are with and seeding those good memories mm. I guess because that's that's what we do leave behind well, I think I mean the, the, the book that I remember reading as a child which which was about it was Charlotte's Web which is about, you know mm. and I remember just sobbing for I think years <laughs> and, <laughs> and um and but that book still comes when when I lose somebody that book still says something to me I'm not quite sure what it says to me but it certainly it was a very an enormously powerful story which is about you know a talking pig actually but those those pictures that it created for me were enormously powerful and actually I suppose very helpful as well I'm sure that these stories will as you were saying the, the, every child who reads them every, and they're not just for children these um, they will go away with their very own interpretation of of that subject and those characters and those situations. We've got oh I think we're good. We've got time for one more question. We've got well, I think we'll just go for two more questions. So because you said just the right thing to Keith earlier, you can have yeah, one more. Right. And then <laughs> over to this. Um, what is it that you enjoy about writing books and then people reading them and thinking to themselves? about what it's about. What do you enjoy about that? Do you want to go that? Yeah, you answer, yeah. Uh, uh, um, well, I, I like writing for... I like writing for you. Not just because you've got great taste. <laughs> uh, but I like writing for young people. I find... I've just spent a week uh, here at the Book Festival running concurrently to the Book Festival. There was the World Writers Conference, 50 writers from all over the world, and we all sat around and debated the big issues to do with literature. And it was great, it's a fantastic experience, I was really pleased to be involved, and I met a lot of adult writers who said, oh, I write for myself, I write books for me, you know, and I kind of thought, well, I write because I enjoy it, uh, but I don't write books really for me, I write books that I hope I pick up and read perhaps, but I don't really write for me because I'm not a teenager, so I can't write for me. And I was thinking, well, you know, why do I write for you a lot? It seems that a lot of the adult novels, the writing for themselves, uh, it's like that snake eating its own tail, do you know what I mean? They're just kind of writing books for themselves. And, and I've realised that as an adult, I don't read books I don't want to read. As an adult, um, I, I won't pick up a book and read it if, it's, if it uh, offends me too much or it challenges what I already believe in too much. Whereas you lot, you are forced on a daily basis to read books you don't want to read at school. And not just read them, but dissect them and pull them apart and have to do tests on them. Uh, we don't do that as adults anymore. And so I think writing for young people is, is the most exciting thing because I think your minds are a bit more open than adult minds. Um, and and I'm, arguing, I'm arguing it, you know. I'm ag but you're not going to change my mind uh, because I'm an adult and I'm setting my ways. But I've discovered after many, many school visits that teenagers, the young people, they argue to find out what they do believe in. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're arguing to find out what is going on in there. They've got all these thoughts and they don't know for themselves what's right, what's wrong, what's going on. So they'll argue with you not to try and change your mind, but to change their own minds. And that's what's brilliant about writing for you lot, is because, um, because I can throw as many thoughts at you as one, and you'll sort them out in your own way. Whereas adults are just far too dull and stuck in their own <laughs> way. Yeah, so, so I, I, like, I don't like writing for adults. Forget them. I, I want write, to write for you lot, personally. Great. I've got one more question here. Um, 
Yeah, I'm not sure how I'm actually phrase this. So, so um, this idea that uh, only you're talking about, you know, we don't know what happens after, and death is that full full stop, and healthcare practitioners sort of focus on the bit before because they don't want to focus on that full stop. I'm wondering if by focusing on this imaginary afterlife that we also don't know about, I don't think it exists, but but you know, I accept that plenty of people do. That we're kind of also ignoring that full stop and and focusing on this sort of imaginary, you know, wish fulfillment. And I, I, I guess my question is, is there enough literature that looks about, looks, looks at that point as a full stop and, and the afterlife where nothing happens to the individual who's dead, but actually really explores the afterlife for, the, for the, those around them? Uh, Keith's story in this book is about that. Yeah. I, I, I think which is why I liked it best. It's not just because you're there. Yeah, you're just saying that. <laughs> no, I'm not. That. I'm not, because I, for me, the, it's so important what happens before. I don't care what happens afterwards, but I care passionately about what happens beforehand. Um, and so that's why your story, which is about... Cutting up a dog. Cutting up a dog. <laughs> other people's memories <laughs> of you. Um, uh, and, and how important those are. I, I, I thought that was actually, I thought it was the most courageous because it's very easy to mm. make up bizarre stories of insurance salesmen uh, accompanying you past the full stop and trying to uh, <laughs> get we, their last. <laughs> I'm sorry, we must stop now. I am going to take um, our three speakers to the children's tent, so it's just out the first gate there. Um, and you will be able to sign. Um, sadly, we don't have copies of your book, but you know what to look for now. But if any of you have outstanding questions that you'd like to ask, I'm sure they'd be happy to answer them. Thank you very Thank much you. for your questions. Thank you, Thank you to Keith Gray, Iona Heath and Kate Harrison. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.